Welcome to a bonus episode of Rediscovering SB 1070. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I'm a national political reporter for the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I also co-host our weekly political podcast, The Gaggle. And I'm Ron Hansen. I'm also a national political reporter and co-host of The Gaggle. In season two of Rediscovering, we explored the events leading up to and following the passage of Senate Bill 1070 in Arizona. Governor Jen Burr is coming out right now. Her decision very closely scrutinized. We're going to know it right now. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you all for being here today to join me as we take another step forward in protecting the state of Arizona. The Show Me Your Papers law was met with pushback from Latino organizers, grassroots activists, DACA recipients, and more. The sun is hot in Arizona. We are changing the state capital. But nothing like the political heat on Arizona Governor Jan Brewer. It's a racist law. It's causing discord in Arizona. We need your help. That pushback didn't end after SB 1070 was signed. Latino activists continued to organize. They pushed for voter registration. They rallied around local candidates. They helped elect Democrats like Sheriff Paul Penzone and Kirsten Cinema. Even with my coworkers, I'm just like, don't forget to vote. You know, it's really important, especially if we want to see a change. If we really do want to see a change, we need to go out and vote. And now the 2020 election has come and gone. For the first time since 1996, Arizona voted for a Democrat for president. Joe Biden's narrow victory was the work of multiple voting blocks and a confluence of events that made for an unforgettable year and an election cycle that will be looked back on for decades to come. But in the immediate aftermath, we wanted to revisit some of the voices you heard in the past five episodes. In today's epilogue, we're bringing together two people from our show to discuss SB 1070's effects on the election. You'll hear from Tony Valdivinos. Tony is a Democratic organizer and DACA recipient who was called to action by SB 1070. As we saw these results, people had a reason to come out to vote this year. Uh, the biggest prerogative is getting them to have a reason to show up on every election. You'll also hear from Chuck Coughlin. In 2010, Chuck was an advisor to Republican Governor Jan Brewer. A functional border is absolutely critical to Arizona's long-term economic success. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time to go through all this with us. Um, what we really want to do is close the loop on the podcast series that we did earlier in the year on the legacy of Senate Bill 1070. And we ended that series noting that the 2020 elections were approaching and would pose sort of another test of the uh, public sentiment and, and sort of the after effects of all of that. So in light of the elections ending, we wanted to hear from both of you and what to make of the recent elections, especially here in Arizona, and how, if at all, 1070 uh, may have helped shape the political coalitions that were decisive in the most recent elections. So let's start with the big question. Uh, Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in Arizona and in the Electoral College. Uh, how significant were Latino voters, the people most impacted by SB 1070, uh, in that narrow outcome? Um, I think Latinos uh, 
first of all, this state uh, was for the first time selected as a battleground state. Uh, so that was a big deal for us who have been organizing on the ground. Uh, I've been organizing for about 10 years um, with a lot of the other Latinos that have been pushing to get Latinos registered and out and actively voting. I think Latinos had a big um, margin in contributing to the overall uh, victory of the state, but ultimately there's plenty of more work to do, um, especially in, in cities like City of Phoenix, uh, anything below McDowell has a very low turnout rate. And so we work a lot with organizations in those areas to make sure that people are participating, not only in their school board, but all the way down um, up to the presidency uh, to make sure that we can get representation across the board. Um, I, I would concur that there are Biden's victory, as I've said a number of times, is a mosaic of reasons why that happened. It's not any one constituency or one part of it. Let's remember he won by 10,000 votes. The paper today had a big story about the 56,000 Navajos, that margin up there. So let's all, it's obviously on a 10,000 vote uh, margin. It, it is, um, it's a mosaic of reasons. And I undoubtedly agree with Tony that there is portions of the Hispanic community, particularly younger, his generation, that are have become, as this has been a source of activation for them, and he would know that better than I, but we see it in, demo, in demographic turnout numbers um, and the ability to mobilize those portions of the electorate that heretofore have not participated. But let's also remember that the Hispanic uh, constituency was also a target of the Trump campaign, and Trump did better in, in some of those, because there are, it's a traditionally, as it gets older, it's traditionally more conservative, Second Amendment supporters tend to be a little bit more pro-life, uh, tend to be a little more authoritarian and, and police-focused uh, uh, or public safety support. And there's a, I think, and I'd love to hear Tony's comment on this, I, I see a, a discrepancy between younger Hispanic voters and older Hispanic voters that can be exploited by uh, electoral narratives. And I thought I saw that in, in this cycle. Yeah, and I would absolutely completely agree. I think that that's also the challenge here uh, for us young organizers is that we are in a new wave, say per se, generation of, of thought process of, of seeing the world uh, being more progressive. Uh, but there is an enormous discrepancy between older generation Latinos and uh, younger Latinos. And the biggest work that organizations like my, uh, like mine does and other organizations that are Latino-led, uh, our number one um, goal is to get more people included in the process because the biggest discrepancy is that gap that Chuck mentioned uh, between 18-year-olds to 54-year-olds uh, that don't participate largely in elections. Um, and just as we saw these results, people had a reason to come out to vote this year. Uh, the biggest prerogatives of getting them to have a reason to show up on every election, even even transportation elections like we just had uh, here that is gonna make a very big investment and difference in our local economy and and, uh, and ability to move around. But absolutely, I think uh, Latinos have uh, been mobilized or gonna continue to be mobilized. And uh, our expectation and hope and goal is to keep pushing people uh, to show up in larger droves uh, throughout the election cycles. With President-elect Joe Biden's very narrow win. It didn't seem 
like there was a clear repudiation or a clear endorsement of some of these hardline immigration enforcement strategies and actions of the Trump administration. So where does that sort of leave us here in Arizona and those who have felt obviously very strongly about these issues for a number of years? I'll take a first shot at that. Um, I I think Arizona is a very unique state in that regard to the entire issue. Our we are um, our largest trading partner is Mexico. We have the largest border, um, I think, of any uh, state uh, with Mexico, um, and so it's critical to the state's economic growth that we have a functional border that produces legal trade and immigration, um, and. You know, the evolution, as you guys pointed out in your series, was that in 2010, it was demonstrable uh, that the border was being overrun, that it was not secure. One of the things that Trump uh, can uh, claim credit for is securing the border. Um, We've seen uh, a dramatic decrease in apprehensions um, and... uh, concomitantly, unfortunately, a dramatic increase in trade, um, which is devastating, I think, to the long-term prospects of the Arizona economy. And I think Arizona voters know that, and they know that it's a two-pronged approach that I've been speaking to since even 2010, that a, a functional border is absolutely critical to Arizona's long-term economic success and that includes security, because we saw, in, again, in 2010, uh, in those eras, um, massive amounts of human smuggling, which is a new moniker that we've subsequently identified uh, for illegal immigration. But human smuggling is now you know, a terrible thing, which was rampant in that period of time. And so that's been significantly diminished. But at the same time, unfortunately, we still haven't resolved the path to legal immigration. And I would hope that if Senator Kelly and Cinema have anything to say over the next two to four years, um, that would be a critical issue for them if they're to be successful in the future of claiming credit on critical issues to Arizona would be securing some type of immigration reform while not sacrificing border security. Um, And so, which is a really difficult tightrope to walk with many constituencies. We can see that with Sheriff Penzone being criticized by some of the most activist elements uh, in the Democratic Party, but we can also see him getting the most votes in Maricopa County. He's the embodiment of what practical immigration policy does look like, but he's just obeying the law. He has nothing to do with who can come in. That's where the federal government's role is critically important in defining a future of what this looks like. Tony, what about, do you have an opinion on this? I mean, do you think that this, um, these results, Biden's win, I mean, is that a repudiation or an endorsement of Trump's um, immigration actions? Or something else? I think it's uh, it's absolutely something else. I think that this is an absolute human moment for the country uh, when it comes to immigration. I was fortunate enough to, to qualify for DACA, which absolutely revolutionized my life 
It allowed me to do more. It allowed me to start a business which employs dozens of students every year. Uh, and so I think um, I, I think that this result in the in this in the presidential uh, selection has a lot to do with the president's behavior, but a lot to do with the economy's insecurity through the pandemic and how we're going to bounce back. Um, and I believe that this election really had a little bit in my personal uh, experience had more to do with the dangers of politicizing the pandemic. And I think that that really got the country's attention away from a lot of the social issues that were impacted with as a growing economy as the number one power in the, in the world. But um, I believe this results we saw had a lot to do with the 10 years of organizing that Latinos have done. I think it had to do with a lot of uh, Democrats and some conservatives that wanted to see a change at the presidency. Uh, and that's my humble opinion. I believe that the this election was driven by a lot of factors that um, were outside of immigration, uh, even though that's my entire life. I, 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 uh, I, I joined politics for a fair amount of reasons uh, outside of immigration. And so I, I, I do believe in the conversations that I heard this year at the doors. Uh, my group hit over 100,000 uh, contacts, uh, either through phones or texts or, or maybe a door knock. Um, and voters wanted a change in leadership, but also wanted local uh, leadership uh, to deliver more um, in services and in what we all pay for tax. So I think that there's a lot more to do with the overall results of the state um, other than uh, just the driving force behind immigration. I do want to say uh, on Chuck's point about Paul Pinzone, I was part of his election twice uh, to get him elected. We fought very, very deeply to be represented by a sheriff that that did uh, follow the law and not uh, used the law to terrorize communities and separate families. And I think that that's uh, part of the result here is that we've mobilized not to elect the perfect representatives, but to elect representatives that would work with the community and would work uh, with existing policy um, to just really absolutely have a safer and more prosperous uh, economy. Uh, and I think that that's really what the entire push here this year was uh, in the election is that uh, we want people to participate so that they go back and, and, and uh, contribute themselves to the overall representation of, of our state. And I think that that's what we saw. That's my perspective is that we saw a lot of people show up for the first time on election night. I'll close up with this quickly on election night, 15 minutes before the polls closed, this gentleman came in, uh, 49 years old, African-American. And he told me, I was holding a, ra a rally sign for my candidate. And he said, this is the first time I've ever voted. Uh, and he was 49. And so I had a really big moment where I recognized that this is why there will forever be more work to do in, in representation is that until we get folks like that to have more than a reactive reason to come out and, and vote for a new president, it's, it's about getting them to want to show up every election so that we have a better equal system uh, of representation. I have a little bit of an additional observation as to the effects uh, of that, and that is um, 
on local elections. We, we did see, I, I witnessed uh, in the mayoral contest in 19, uh, a significant um, participation shift on the local election side in Mayor Gallego's victory over Danny. Um, and that would, that would define as a more progressive candidate beating a more centrist candidate, both Democrats. Um, and then I saw the, the victories on city council races that have subsequently followed on with that and presumably will continue to follow on with that uh, in this cycle, um, which has made um, an interesting place to watch the Phoenix Council uh, and the mayor try to manage a much more progressive council than probably the city as a whole would would look like. Um, and it's a very and as a progressive, as a progressive herself, and how to manage those constituencies has in the midst of a pandemic, uh, which is also the, the, the it cannot be ignored. But where we've really where I've really witnessed the significant impact of what Tony and the activism um, in uh, in some of these is at the local level. Um, and where we see much more progressive constituencies electing much more progressive candidates. So I want to uh, piggyback on something that uh, Yvonne noted, which is this sort of lack of great clarity uh, from these 2020 elections. Um, and um, it's it's clear from, say, the results in Florida uh, certainly wide swaths of Texas, especially near the border, um, that the Latino vote was much more open uh, to Republicans than what a lot of people may have imagined. Uh, Chuck, you noted that the president's team made a big push here in Arizona to reach out to that group. Talk about the space that exists as a practical matter now moving forward after the Trump era for Republicans to try and engage with uh, the Latino community uh, politically? Uh, is this an opportunity? Is, it, is that space wider than a lot of folks have imagined? How does 1070 complicate that, that initiation? It's a multi-layer. That's a good question, Ron, uh, because uh, I see it as a real opportunity. The president began to explore it you you can you you can aspire uh, ascribe motivations differently to him than a lot of people, but unquestionably the uh, the opening here is with entrepreneurs. Um, the community has a lot of historical entrepreneurs, small business owners, people who have done their thing, have been part in the community legally for a long time, who are proud of what they've accomplished, and are not. Don't ascribe, as I think, as Tony would uh, mentioned earlier, to a lot of the progressive agenda. So there's a lot of people in that there's a giant space that can be spoken to by the smart Republican candidate or even a Democratic candidate, for that matter, about addressing um, that entrepreneurial community that was is within the Hispanic community um, that uh, can be spoken to about law and order, about Second Amendment rights, about, um, about the sanctity of life, uh, and, and can be addressed. And so um, there's an opportunity there if you don't get caught up in, in uh, you know, tax bailouts for rich people and tax bailouts for rich companies. You know, that part of that free enterprise uh, economy 
has a ring in it that that rings to them, but not on the big business side. There's not a lot of those on the grassroots side. I perceive there's a giant opportunity to represent the the. And I think a lot of people have talked about this for Republicans to articulate an agenda about um, the working man, about the working man and women of this uh, country who are you know nine to five, crushing it, working their tail off to provide for their family and you know the the uh the wine drinking coastal elites really don't have an answer to that community and there and I would argue that Trump's wasn't genuine um and there's a genuine opportunity to narrate to that space uh on policy issues that can make their lives better um and can be genuinely make the state a better place and so there's, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that, Ron, is there's a lot of opportunity there for, uh, for Republicans to think differently, um, not just exploitively, but just think re- re- differently about how to do good things for that community. So, Tony, what do you make about that? Uh, you know, if the Latino vote is more splintered, isn't that a good thing uh, if people have to compete more for every vote or, you know, d- how does that complicate your efforts to try and mobilize uh, folks uh, if, if they seem more diverse than, uh, than what a lot of folks may imagine? You know, I'm, I'm excited to say that I 100% agree with Chuck's perspective here. Um, and the reason why is that as a big progressive, as a dreamer, as a DACA recipient, um, there, as a, I did construction for 15 years of my life, uh, demolition. Uh, I mean, I grew up in true hard labored um, environments. And uh, this year I learned something. It, just, it blew me away, but my cousin, very close cousin, um, her husband, US citizen, uh, decided to vote for Trump. And it was it was kind of a shocker, you know, how can you be a Latino? How can you vote for Trump? Uh, and it really had to do with the uh, future, the uncertainty of the business entrepreneur, right? Young gentleman has his first two daughters um, and is not bringing in the progressive agenda. He wants to get back to work. He wants to start a business. Um, and um, I think that the the reason I'm excited about that is that it does create a higher competition between Democrats and Republicans to earn the vote of Latinos. And I've spent 10 years of my life organizing almost every Saturday to go out and do neighborhood walks to knock on doors and get people out to vote. Um, and Democrats haven't done a good enough job at giving Latinos reasons to vote. And so I think that in the higher competition where you have Democrats that are dormant, uh, and we just saw a lot of Democrat seats uh, we lost in the county. We won the state, but we lost the county. Uh, and I think that the reason I'm excited uh, to say that is that the Democrats have to recognize that they must earn Latinos votes because it's been a very tokenizing experience. It's been a very um, slow process to become allies with uh, with labor and a lot of other um, progressive uh, issues that we all encompass. But ultimately, when it comes back down to 
the real deal, the voter, um, and having a family member of mine knowing full well that I'm a, a full Democrat, uh, voting Republican was a um, was a lesson for me, I would say, and and a reminder that we must do a better job at truly communicating with Latinos. And, and there is an opportunity for Republicans to earn Latino voters because they do feel uh, a lot a, I mean, historically we come from very conservative families in religion uh, and the way that money is perceived and the way that earning a living is also perceived in, in hard work. And that does ring a lot with conservative views. And so do I, I agree with Chuck, there's a big opportunity on our side, uh, in the progressive side, my my tone has always been to push the Democrats to do uh, more work to earn Latino votes. And um, there's, like I said, plenty, plenty of work to do. And and we see that we see that split in the Arizona legislature. I mean, you, you can see um, back to the local level, you can see this split within the caucuses on both sides between the pro-business side um, Hispanic, uh, Repu- uh, Democratic legislator, even Anglo-Democratic uh, 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 le- legislators, and the more progressive elements of the Democratic caucus. We, we call it euphemistically here the Tea Party of the Left um, that, that, that doesn't, doesn't jibe with the more business-friendly, practical elements of the Democratic Party. And we're working as at high ground. We're working with those people and we look forward to working with those people because they're smart and they want to get things done. And that, that's an exciting thing for us to look at. Chuck, you obviously are a Republican. Tony, you are a Democrat. And bipartisan conversations like this don't seem to happen often. They are in relatively short supply, um, especially over the last decade or so. Have you learned anything from the people on the other side of this issue, particularly the issue of illegal immigration and border enforcement, that maybe changed the way that you think about these issues or at least kind of give you some sort of new insight or new perspective when you're thinking about these issues? Um, it's um, I have always wanted to be a student of other people, and I think that uh, – in my experience doing the line of work that I do in political consulting, my lo- it is people. And what we've recognized and what I've learned is that messaging doesn't always uh, resonate with everybody. And I think that part of seeing so many people be disengaged in voting is because they don't believe in either platforms um, and the options are limited. And so I think that there's, um, there's more for everybody to learn um, in this entire um, experience social issue. Uh, there was a um, play that was produced off of my life story uh, that was called Americano. And that, that was subject as a educational piece, uh, which plenty of Republicans went to see and had a lot of comments. And most of what I heard is like, I had no idea that this was happening. And so I think that education is a bigger piece um, in our ability to work with each other uh, in, a, in a pleasant way um, versus always being uh, at odds with each other. And I think that this year we saw a lot of violent conflict between um, 
just where the country was really splitting. And, and for me, I think the right thing has always been to organize and mobilize and educate. Um, and that includes educating ourselves, you know? Um, and I think I have lots to learn myself. Uh, I, I'm excited to meet Chuck for the first time. I've always heard of Chuck. And, you know, I think that it is about opening up space and being willing to be a friend and learn from each other. Um, and, and like you said, it's a rare thing, but I think that that's what leadership is, is that, you know, somebody has to move it forward. For the record, uh, I left the party in 16, so I'm an unaffiliated voter. <laughs> oh my gosh, I missed that. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Um, but obviously most of the firm here is a Republican firm and we're referred to as a Republican firm. And 90% of the candidates we talk to are Republican candidates. Um, I think we've run uh, some candidates at the local level um, in clearly Democratic seats that there wouldn't be a chance of a Republican winning. So, but we are a Republican firm. But I recognized uh, and continue to recognize uh, at my advancing age that parties are only manipulating voters. They're not representing an interest. They're there to manipulate you. Um, and as Tony's pointed out, and as he's learning, all of politics is about relationships. Um, and I've kept my firm strictly focused on Arizona for that reason, because I'm not interested in being part of a larger machine. Um, I'm uh, sorry, a lot of machine may happen. So. <laughs> but I'm not interested in being part of uh, uh, and the firm. I've made that clear to people who come work here. Our focus is Arizona and focuses relationships in Arizona that allow us to do um, things that really help Arizona. Um, and that most of that space, as we've witnessed, is in, uh, in the middle uh, where things get accomplished. The things that our firm is most proud of, uh, of having been involved with is like the Prop 400 election in the early 2000s, which built our regional transportation system, which and, and the first time our, our uh, first regional uh, mobility or, or mass transit system. Uh, our firm's proud of our relationship with the uh, Maricopa Integrated Health System. Now, Valley-wise, we were part and parcel of creating that district and running the campaigns that have now funded it that uh, it's so incredibly important to the health of our, our, our healthcare system here in Arizona. Um, we continue to look for opportunities to do that, but it's really hard. I mean, because you're taking shots from both sides um, and you're getting hit by traffic going both ways. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's been a long struggle to do that. Um, and sometimes, as we did with uh, Governor Brewer, um, we, you know, we, we passed a, uh, a, sales, we, a sales tax increase in the bottom of the recession. We expanded Medicaid coverage. She vetoed the religious liberty bill. I mean, there's a lot of things um, that she did that were incredibly important to the future of the state, which I look back on that I'm so proud to have been involved with. At the same time, we had, we had to deal with 1070. There wasn't an option uh, at that point in time. It's not something she sought, but we had to deal with it. So leadership, as Governor Ducey's finding out and, Gov and President Trump is finding out, is being uh, in the in the managing not in the easy times but in the hard times and how do you survive that 
um, it, it's easy to govern when things are going great. You know, it's like the economy's hopping, everybody's happy. There's some t- pot shots from the left and the right at you. But the minute the the can opens up and things start going bad, the partisan atmosphere on both sides explodes at you. So you got to figure out how to manage on a North Star. You got to figure out what your North Star is. And so that's what we do. We try and find that for people uh, and candidates and companies and clients that we work for is find what that thing is that you need to have done and figure out how to manage that issue in a really difficult political environment. And it's fun. Um, it's also stressful. It's also hugely stressful because, you know, you, you have a lot of people taking shots and looking at you going, well, that's even my own colleagues around here look at me often uh, and say, that's stupid. I mean, one of the things we're looking at right now is, um, is there an opportunity for substantive tax reform given the passage of 208 and the state's reliance on income tax or on sales tax? You know, could you drop them both? and adopt a statewide property tax that would be much better for the state's economy over a long period of time. But who do you get to champion that? Because that's not a sexy issue. You know? so, so, you know, is that a meaningful thing that we could be a part of going forward? So those are the ideas that we like to do. Um, but it's, uh, it's not easy. It's very difficult. And I, I applaud people like everybody's on their own path. And so, Tony obviously has come to this from a different place than I did. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Dad was a lawyer. Mom was in politics. And it was, uh, that was the kind, he was a labor lawyer in Detroit. So in the 50s to the 80s. So he saw everything. And so, you know, very different places, but we've sort of managed to this place where we can see how you get things done. And, And I've said to my kids, I've said to everybody that I've been around, the only thing that you can control is your reaction, um, your own behavior. And so you, you can't do anything about somebody else's behavior. All you can do is your own. And so, you know, that's what I preach to our clients. What do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? And ignore the noise. Ignore the noise and try and focus on those bigger issues. And hopefully, if there's, as I said at the top of this, if there's an opportunity here for Kelly and Cinema to do something on immigration reform, that would be terrific. I, it would make me and I think Tony would be whatever that is. You know, if it makes DACA a permanent thing, makes uh, we have quotas on on uh, green cards and legal routes to immigration that get increased. We're not birthing a lot of people in America anymore, so we may birth more in the COVID. But uh, you know, it's not happening. So we need people to be a part of this economy, to grow the economy. And we need people who want to work and want to be a part of the American experiment. And so that's exciting. But if that can be happen here, I, 10 years ago, you know, 10 years ago, I said the same thing. It, it takes a long time, though, for things to happen. Well, gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for sharing your time and your thoughts with this. And uh, you, you tackled the big issue uh, a decade ago and, and uh, have unpacked the, uh, the fallout from it uh, very nicely for us. And we appreciate that uh, from both of you. Tony, Chuck, thanks so much. We will let you go. Well, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed our epilogue of Rediscovering SB 1070. Many thanks to Tony Valdovinos and Chuck Coughlin for joining us. 
follow along with more of our political coverage, be sure to subscribe to The Gaggle, an Arizona politics podcast. That's our weekly show breaking down the latest in political news. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us, of course, on Twitter. I'm at Yvonne Winget. And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Today's epilogue was produced by Taylor Seeley and Katie O'Connell, with help from Marisa Dominguez. Thanks so much for listening to Rediscovering SB 1070.